morning, everyone. Um, as Wes said, my name is Jace. If I've never met you before, I'm on the pastoral team here. Um, and we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Um, we are in Matthew 6 today. Jumping right in. <clears throat> I'm just going to pray really quick. And um, we're just going to go for it because there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, Jesus, I ask you for your wisdom, your words, and um, I ask for your spirit to be in the room. I pray that you would calm us and draw us close to the Father, and I pray that we'd have eyes to see what you see. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Um, so today we're going to explore this little section known famously as the Lord's Prayer, um, but it also, the section spans to um, 16 through 18 as well, ch chapter 6. So it's just a ton of ground, <laughs> this whole section, verses 5 through 18. We just can't spend equal time on these sections. So what I'm going to do, what I want to do is I want to point out some broader rhetorical, um, the broader rhetorical agenda of Jesus here in this section so that you can take some of these um, tools for your own meditation at home um, for all the areas that we can't cover in depth. Um, so for starters, if you just take your, a pen, a red pen, any color pen, and you start at the Beatitudes and you underline the word reward when it pops up, um, which I think is just the f a favorite English translation of the Greek word mistos, which is underneath, um, you'll see this red thread throughout the sermon. Jesus is interested in talking about this idea of a reward. Um, and you'll see it from the last Beatitude all the way forward. So um, Matthew has employed several literary strategies in the way he structured this sermon. Um, but one of them you'll see is that the first half of the sermon in particular, and then also the second half, um, next slide, hopefully you can see this. Um, you can see that there's, Jesus is subtly answering this question of what's in it for me? Like, what's in it for me if I follow you? And at first he answers that question without any words. Um, you'll remember that the Sermon on the Mount is preceded by him helping a bunch of people. Just with the touch of his hands, he performs healings and um, deliverances and miracles. And so what's in it for people is nothing less than the kingdom of God, the truly good life. That's what's in it for them. But then he moves into the teaching, the sermon, and he showcases all the beneficiaries of the kingdom, the people that he just touched. And he begins to call them up to this mountain. And then he just begins to say, hey, look, you're blessed, 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 blessed. Ending with this announcement that says this. Um, this is the last beatitude. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. First time you see the word. Okay, so in addition to the ministry of Jesus that these people are benefiting from, um, he's also teaching in such a way um, that speaks to the broader human experience um, beyond what they've just experienced just then. So their reward was their healing, certainly. But now what? Now that they've been healed. Um, in the Gospel of John, Jesus gets at this when he feeds people miraculously. And then he challenges them to consider if they want more than food. Um, in fact, all the miracles in John, for those of you that have read the Gospel of John, they're not called miracles. They're called signs. Um, this is for the same reason. These things are good without question. Um, but he wants them to then ask the next question, which is, well, what's in it for me beyond this? And then in turn, he can say, well, where is your reward? This is Jesus' follow-up. So he continues to circle around this theme. 
challenging his hearers to identify their reward. And we just spent, um, man, we spent the past several weeks going through Jesus's rather intense teachings on um, anger and lust and divorce. And we're able to see that through his sort of hyperbolic pedagogy, right? We're just cutting off hands and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, he's able to get after the heart of the matter. He just gets right in there. And he gets to the core of the issue. And before he moves on to the section that we're in today, the um, almsgiving and prayer section, he says right at the end during the enemy love section, which we've, we'll still cover, I promise you, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So once he moves on to the almsgiving and prayer section, the word pops up seven times here. It's final usage um, being in the fasting section, which again, we're not gonna really tear into today, but you can take Jesus's words on your own and just sort of pull all of these things together. Jesus is encouraging his followers to not showcase their practice of fasting because your father who sees in secret will reward you. So fasting is this way of like carving out space in your physical body in order to reorient your desires and then turn them into a prayer. And it's all about discovering just where that reward is. So, and then though the word isn't mentioned in that red section, just pay attention to the, what he talks about. You can see the theme go right through. Okay, so hopefully we're getting this idea. I just wanna give you that for your own reading this week. You can take that and meditate on it. Um, <clears throat> that's one avenue through the Sermon on the Mount. There are, there are several. In any case, Jesus, the teacher, communicates in such a way that his words are always peeling back motives and heart issues and desires and goals. And then he brings them to the surface so he can begin to sort through them. So um, now we're moving into it. Something about the way Jesus presents all of this and the way we initially read it, maybe you've had this experience, I have it almost every time I read the Sermon on the Mount, is it brings up a sense of paranoia and panic within us. Because he says, I want your righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Or be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Um, or, or when you pray, don't heap up all this language like the Gentiles. And you're like, wait a minute, I've been to a prayer meeting or two. And I know <laughs> we've been, <laughs> you know what I mean? And by saying all these things, what he does is he's continuing to reach in to the heart and reveal the truth about what's there, what's inside. And it reveals where we're paranoid like the pagans trying to twist the arm of the gods or where we're self-righteous, like the Pharisees following the letter, but like missing the heart. And so it's this, it can be this anxious reading process because you're getting sifted like that. Um, so what we have here right in the middle of all of it, this is so brilliant, is this little famous passage, which we know is the Lord's Prayer. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at that. Um, and so I just wanna ask the question up front: what is the significance of Matthew situating the teaching on the prayer right here um, in the middle of a larger section about the heart and our priorities and where our reward is. He puts it right in the middle. N.T. Wright says, the Lord's prayer is designed to shift our priorities, to move us from paranoia to prayer. So let's jump in. Um, in contrast, to the self-righteous piety and then the paranoia of the Gentiles and all the other stuff. Jesus says, okay, when you pray though, take a deep breath. I want you to internalize something profound. Y your father knows already what you're going to say. 
So it's very different from you trying to get the God's attention. Um, what you should do is you should take a deep breath and you should begin like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. <clears throat> so there's a common takeaway at the Lord's Prayer where when Jesus says, our Father, the pastor or the teacher usually says, you see, Jesus calls him Abba, means daddy, and he's doing it, so he's the first to do so in a groundbreaking way, groundbreaking way so let's call upon our daddy. Um, and to be sure, there, there's truth, there's truth to that um, takeaway, but the scholarship is a bit shaky. First, we know that um, God referred to as Abba was done before Jesus, so there's that. Um, but then the second is that in terms of the realms of linguistics, Abba could have spanned a bit broader than just simply the terms of daddy. Either way, it is at least, at least an affectionate term. Um, but I bring this up because everything is worth exploring a bit more if we can find that invitation for a richer, biblically informed interpretation. What is it that Jesus is getting at when he calls God Father? Is it merely an affectionate term? Now, certainly that is part of it. There's no question. It is affectionate. Um, I don't want to disregard that. But additionally, we can conclude that Jesus, as he often does, harkens back to the Old Testament, <laughs> where God is called Father. And some, someone else is called the Son of God. Spoiler alert, Jesus is not the first person to be called the Son of God, if you've read your Bible. A whole bunch of people are called the Son of God. So read with me Exodus 4, 22, when the Lord instructs Moses. He says, hey, I want you to go up to Pharaoh, and I want you to say, thus says the Lord, Israel is... Who? My firstborn son. So I'm telling you right now, let my son go, that he may serve me. So Jesus is flashing this very important signal to his disciples here by once again inviting them into the identity of Israel as the Lord's firstborn son. By reminding them of God as their father, he signals to them that God is once again on the move to perform the new exodus which is precisely what the Gospels are about, you guys. Jesus' life and ministry leading up to those final Passover hours where he provides a sacrifice and then sets himself up as the king of their deliverance and salvation. The time has come, Jesus will preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you have to recall Israel coming out of the kingdom of Egypt, watching over their shoulders as the king of Egypt dies in the chaos waters and then turns to face the mountain where the true king is shining down on them in glory and radiance, bestowing upon the people the, the identity of children who are then to operate within his kingdom, the kingdom of God. So just think through the gospels between Jesus' baptism, where he's called the son of God, and then his message about the kingdom of God and his ministry, which advances the kingdom and his transfiguration up there on the fiery mountain. And then the final meal of his life, which is called the Passover, um, we're to see within the words of his prayer that when we pray our father, we're taking on the identity of sonship, which is an, an affectionate term, certainly, but it's also this identity which anticipates the new exodus where chains of sin and evil are broken for good. To pray our father is to ask him to lend his ear, to hear and respond, and to come and save and deliver once again. And T. Wright says... The very first word of the Lord's Prayer, therefore, in Greek or Aramaic, Father would have come first in the sentence, contains within it not just intimacy, but revolution. Not just familiarity, but hope. It's a political prayer almost. Of course, um, Jesus locates his Father as being in heaven, 
And then he calls for the hallowing of his name. That is um, the good and right recognition of his distinct and unique name above all the other names. Entirely different and totally other than anyone else. This is our father in heaven. There's none like him. Um, Sorry, one more quote by Wright. Look at this. He says, this prayer starts by addressing God intimately and lovingly as father and by bowing before his greatness and majesty. If you can hold those two together, you're already on the way to understanding what Christianity is all about. So I want to think on this for a second. Um, This act of holding two things together, which feel at times a bit incompatible um, and a bit paradoxical. This is what... This is what I feel like I'm, we have, I, I really want to share more than anything else. Um, okay, so most humans, I say most because Steve Fish goes to this church, but most humans have what we call binocular vision. <laughs> I texted Steve and I asked if that joke was okay. He said yes. <laughs> Which just means we have two eyes. <laughs> Some healthier than others. Okay, so in general, um, when these two eyes work together... They give us what's called a field of view or a vision field. Um, so the, the maximum um, visual field of the average human is about 190 degrees. But 120 degrees of that, hopefully you can see on this diagram, um, 120 degrees is um, what eye people, whatever you call that person, um, it's called the binocular visual field, which means both eyes can see what's inside that plane that you can see it in the white triangle there. Leaving the remainder um, monocular fields to be seen only by the left or right eye, respectively. So what's cool about monocular vision is that your left and your right eye are actually seeing two separate images. They're different. They're distinct. Um, And the eye people call call this um, binocular disparities, the differences between these two. But your brain is amazing. And so it takes those disparities and it brings them together by some miracle, and then we get a richer understanding of what's in front of us, a a more detailed account, better information, which we just simply call depth perception. Depth perception is a richer understanding of what's in front of you. So here's the point. With binocular vision, we're able to more accurately understand the truth of what's in front of us because our brains harness both ends of the spectrum to make sense of depth. You with me? Okay. Thought for a while about this illustration. It's a flawed one. But I'd like to suggest this morning that I think Jesus wants to give us spiritual binocular vision by inviting us to pray this prayer. Again, what does it actually feel like in our experience as Christians to be told by this Jesus guy that God is our Father and that he's wholly other, like unique and completely different? Well, which is it? It's like Jesus is aware of the fact that we're not quite sure we can relate to God like that all the time. Or maybe there's a feeling of disconnect. So perhaps you can see a picture from the Hubble telescope, or you can see the cosmic power of God when you look at the ocean and the sun setting behind it. And perhaps in those moments, you can believe that he's the one in heaven, that his name is holy, that he's the creator of the universe. But it's unclear how exactly he's like your father, your dad. It doesn't feel so close. It feels a bit too grand. Or maybe you've been intimately connected with God, that you're, you have a really rich prayer life, um, and you've had actually a lot of these experiences that confirm that closeness you feel. 
But then you look out over the problems of the world, um, which we know all too well <laughs> right now, and you can't help but wonder, gosh, are you in heaven in charge of things cosmically above it all? Or is it just kind of out of control? Um, but it seems to me that Jesus wants us to understand a full picture of God, the depth of God and his good world by holding both of these things. Um, because as humans, we're prone to simplicity, uh, to just to black and white thinking, um, just something being straightforward. I really relate to this. Death perception kind of freaks us out if we can just get a 2D image. It's much easier. <laughs> and I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily, but if that's our bent, which I think for most of us it is, then those moments where we must blend two things together into one and ho by holding really difficult extremes in tension, those moments can be very difficult and very stretching for us. God is Father, which means that we're to see in him an intimate mind and heart, a being who does in fact love us and has a mind and a plan of exodus and liberation for his people once and for all, but also there is this cosmic creation out there which he is the holy reigning king and over it. And to catch a mere glimpse of his grand plan or creative power over all of those things has the potential to render us like Job, just like humbled, jaw on the floor. We certainly were not there when the foundations of the earth were laid. So when we pray like Jesus, we're not permitted to favor one over the other. Rather, we're asked to cultivate this skill. It's a new skill and it's really difficult where we somehow say, Father in heaven. Let's keep going. Um, the next line is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <clears throat> the New Testament calls Jesus our older brother. So we watch him. Our call is to rise up in the ability to impersonate our older brother and like wear his clothes. Calling God Father with eyes to see the kingdom, to seek daily bread, daily forgiveness, to weep, to laugh, to sit in the dirt of the earth with imaginations lost in heaven like Jesus did. Um, hopefully we've made it clear within our community since the moment you came in the door, whenever that was, that this phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we believe that it means what it says. God's kingdom in heaven, that is where his rule and purposes and um, mission and will, they're somehow gloriously, perfectly realized. They're meant to advance here in our space, on our land, in the same way, um, where it is desperately needed. Um, so that's not to say we believe earth and heaven are, um, or sorry, heaven is good, earth is bad. We believe that from the beginning, both are two good parts of God's good creation. And Revelation ends with those two spaces united forever. But currently our feet have found cracked dirt stripped of like heavenly water and nutrients, dirt with no potential for life. Um, but with our imaginations lost in heaven, we see a new reality like Jesus did, and then we pray for it to come, for heaven to touch down and work into the barren earth, the compost and living water of heaven, to see something new grow out of pain and darkness all around us. And so to be clear, on earth as, in, as it is in heaven, it just means what it says. This is not just a prayer about like personal spiritual depth or a prayer for the final reality to be good. We don't pray for God's kingdom to come merely in the age to come. That would be monocular vision. We must hold it in tension. <laughs> two kinds, there's two kinds of monocular vision, I think, in this extreme. Look, I don't wanna be disappointed, 
So all my eggs are in the age to come basket. So when I pray. Second is, it's all on us. We got to yank heaven down come hell or high water. Um, but binocular vision. <laughs> Apparently, we are to hold both of these at the same time. And we're to pray our Father, anticipating the ultimate exodus of the second advent, that is to situate our hope in its proper place, but also the exodus brought about by the real power of Jesus in real time and space and real history, we're to pray that the earth and all of its brokenness would change here and now. Um, and gosh, this is so hard to do. The older I get and the more complex and maddening and frustrating and depressing and horrifying life under the sun can seem some days, the more I come to understand just how difficult it is to wake up every day and pray this prayer. Because when you're young, um, I don't know, like a bright-eyed graduate who feels he understands all things, you decide to follow Jesus and you get excited about this idea of God's kingdom coming now and ministry and Bible school and stuff like that. And living in the tension of the now and the not yet or whatever, it's a mystery, but it's fine. One day it'll all be well. And like, quite frankly, like I got to get on with my brunch plans and plan a next vacation and make a few Amazon purchases. But the longer you live here, the longer you live on planet Earth, the more you come to love, the more skin you have in the game, the more you see where heaven has not overlapped in full quite yet, and the more you're exposed to pain and darkness. With each breath we take every day as we grow up, we're more and more likely to inhale the stale, dank air of suffering and tragedy and evil. That's not the way it's supposed to be. I now say this year with greater conviction than I've ever said before in my life. Like, Father, do something. And suddenly it feels much riskier to pray your kingdom come. Because the mystery of that tension, whatever that is, is no longer okay with me. I can't bear the mystery, if I'm honest. I can't bear the pain. I can't bear the suffering another day if it doesn't come. Um, but the only way to hold on, the only solution forward, the key to unlock the whole thing, somehow is to return my gaze upon the one teaching me to pray right now. Because without him, I cannot make sense of the calling of God, of calling God Father when awful tensions remain and my heart continues to break every day. Um, but Jesus, I am convinced, is the way through this valley. The Jesus I see in the Gospels is not one who was distant from the heartache. The Jesus we find in the Gospels, man, he just spearheads the tension. He's compassionate to all who sat in that cracked dirt of the earth, whose cheeks shone with the tears sourced in a vision of heaven that just wasn't coming true in their here and now. And it's this Jesus who goes boldly into those spaces to experience all of that, to marry himself to it, even as I, when I'm honest, run away because I can't bear it. It's this Jesus who still, still captures me. And the whole Bible echoes the refrain and melody of the suffering servant who mysteriously understands truly the plight of humanity. He gets it. He ingests it into his very body and he undergoes it. And the good news of the kingdom does not start with a God who from a very lofty and removed position beckons the little dirty ones out of the mud. 
The good news of the kingdom, while it grows into something spectacular, we must remember it starts like a seed buried in the deep of the soil. It starts with a God who from the very beginning got his hands dirty in the mud of humanity and who, despite the fate which awaited him on the cross, took up flesh and went into the dirt alongside us, our older brother. This is the great high priest in whom we find total compassion and empathy, the one who sees truly the greatest depths of the pain we feel. That is the claim of the gospels. So the good news begins with a God who has become human and has promised that no matter what shadow we find ourselves in, no matter what valley we feel we're destined to roam forever, the good news begins with a promise that he will be with us in those troubles. Even as Matthew 1 through 4 began with eyes opening to the light shining in the darkness, so too we take our first breath and say, first and foremost, God, wow, show me you are near. Be Emmanuel. God with us. Let his presence, the beginning of this good news, flood our systems today. And, and you'll recall that it is even unto death that this promise of companionship goes. The reader of the Gospels has to wait till the end to see that the great plan of God was to defeat evil not through worldly violence, but through loving sacrifice, where death ate itself alive. Jesus tasted death completely, and so in faith we believe the Bible when it says that he's with us in the darkest hour of the night, in the most pointed and sharpest pain of our suffering. He's with us. And, and, don't forget all your parables about the kingdom. The seed never just stays in the dirt. The good news of the kingdom grows from that place. It's with us in the dirt, but then it grows into something bigger. It teaches us to ask for more of heaven to touch down, for God's rule to be more and more realized. This is the good news, growing, shining brighter. Jesus invites us to pray for more. We hear him say, pray for more than just my proximity within your pain. Pray for my kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Somehow, binocular vision. <clears throat> Next line. Give us today our daily bread. There's a slight variation um, in Matthew and Luke's account of this little line. Um, the Greek shakes out to say in Matthew something like, give us today our bread for tomorrow. And then in Luke, it says, give us each day our daily bread. Um, no doubt both of these reflect different aspects of what Jesus intended and taught over the course of his years of ministry. He taught probably the same thing for th three years. And so different audiences certainly would have received little nuances in those teachings. Um, Matthew, we can understand, emphasized asking for the promise of the great tomorrow to come today. Whereas Luke, no surprise if you've read Luke's gospel before, emphasizes the importance of daily needs for needy life on planet Earth, especially for the least of these. Either way, we ask for the abundance of God's kingdom to come on Earth, even in the form of our very practical needs. Fun fact, this little line, I didn't know this until this past couple weeks, this little line of the Lord's Prayer was downright puzzling to commentators in the past, first few centuries of the church. And they made swift effort to like reinterpret it. Jesus couldn't possibly mean actual bread. Tertullian, Cyprian, and Augustine all assumed that this meant the invisible bread of the word of God, <laughs> or at least to the Eucharist. Let's get a little spiritual, come on. Um, Jerome, in his Latin translation of the Vulgate, rendered daily as super substantial. 
getting at the same idea, which is just a ridiculously long word for daily. It wasn't until the Reformation, actually, that the most straightforward way of reading kind of made a comeback. Um, it's, so it's worth reflection that this little line even makes it into the Lord's Prayer and that it was so hard for people to swallow. Most biblical scholars today just agree. Our daily bread is a shorthand way to say our daily bread. It just means your basic needs. It's, that's what it is. Um, and so the crazy part for all these church history figures of the past, and you can sympathize, is that the request for bread is happening in the same prayer as God's heavenly kingdom coming to flood the injustices of the world and the cosmic creation. Like the same prayer that's recognizing God as the cosmic father and king who intends to save the whole of creation and liberate her into the new age is also saying, and like I need some dinner tonight. <laughs> and you can feel the disconnect a little bit, but binocular vision, come on. Jesus holds both of these for us that we can have a richer picture of the depth of God. Again, writes, quote, if you can hold these two together, you're already on your way to understanding what Christianity is all about. There are many reasons for this in my own life right now, but I cannot tell you how much this tension is really rising to the surface for me and how I think it's rising to the surface for, for a lot of us as we continue to pick up the mantle of prayer. We do not practice a religion or follow a God that allows us to swing one way. The Lord's Prayer paints a picture of God who is loving Father and holy cosmic creator, entirely other and impossibly empathetic in every way. His will is for the advancement of his kingdom and the full eradication of evil, and yet we don't see it happening fully right now. But then sometimes we do. And his agenda, while cosmic in scope, does not permit us to quit praying for things like meals and shelter and finances. It does not permit us to become Christians who only pray for promotions and good weather, but it does not allow us to neglect praying for those things either. By learning to hold both and praying them in the way that Jesus does, working through them in this order, it becomes clear to us which things like rise up in our hearts as the first in priority. And then, we, then, here we go, we begin to see where our reward is, where our treasures are. But there's not condemnation there. Jesus is, just offers us the language of the Lord prayer to sift through those chunky clunky parts of our soul, learning how to pray our Father first, orienting ourselves to his holiness in heaven, but not and never at the expense of saying, and I need food. So today we pray for our food and our monthly bills to be paid and for our sleep. I tell you what, I have never prayed for sleep before in my life until my daughter was born. And suddenly we prayed for so much for sleep. In my house, you'd think sleep was the name of a long lost family member. <laughs> when Liv prays at the dinner table, she constantly says, thank you God for this food and we pray for good sleep. I was like, you're going to get great sleep tonight, please. <laughs> we laugh, we laugh, but it's this real tension we experience. I have never felt the tension so much as this year. In the midst, man, in the midst of such pain and suffering that my family has witnessed, not to mention the national and global suffering we've all witnessed, how do I even utter the breath of a prayer for something as trivial as sleep? Like, it feels selfish, a, it feels selfish sometimes. B, like, does God even care? You with me? Have you felt this? If I can't see the kingdom showing up in this thing that really matters, like, what's the point of praying for my children before bed for them to have good dreams? And I really, man, it's the tension. But I really do believe 
or at least I'm asking the Holy Spirit to help me believe, to consider that Jesus himself was very aware of that tension and was actually not afraid to put words to it. I have to believe that he prayed for the beheading of the serpent, which was wrapped around the whole world and around every human heart, and I think he prayed for his mother and her aching hips, or even the little children in their bad dreams, and for daily bread. And I'm drawn in by this figure who provided us a prayer which took this tension into account and did not let us off the hook to keep asking our Father for all of the above. Next line. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us or our debtors. Jesus is once again taking the radical nature of the kingdom of God being realized in him and then putting it on display for all to see. Forgiveness? Okay, you guys, think, think on your Bibles, your Old Testaments. Forgiveness is temple work. The forgiveness of sins, like there's a process for that. There's a system in place for that. And now we have this Jesus guy who announces forgiveness, not unlike his crazy cousin John down by the river, apart from temple protocol. They're just, God's heart is moving out onto the streets. The kingdom is at hand, is what Jesus says. It's breaking in. Forgiveness is flowing like a river previously held behind the walls of a dam, sort of. Um, So it's important to note that we do not forgive in order to earn forgiveness, especially if you read this little tag at the end of 614, the passage at first glance can, can possibly be read, though. Again, it's like paranoia and anxiety. It can be read and make you feel like you have to earn it. Um, now, certainly these things are intimately connected, but I want to remind you that this is like, this whole sermon reads like this. It's, Jesus, it's just like Jesus' call for perfection or for mind-bending righteousness. It all hinges on God's advancement in Jesus, his kingdom's advancement in Jesus. So we might better understand this prayer's petition for forgiveness and then our um, connectedness to that as far as our obedience to forgive, not as you earning it, but as this wide-eyed recognition that the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Jesus and the flood of forgiveness has broken through the walls of the dam, rushing through the dirty streets of Isengard, stained with debts and sin, and the flood has swept us all up. And to refuse to forgive, to hold that within your heart is to leave those clean waters and then return to the filthy bank while the river of life flows on without you. But the moment you become washed in the waters of forgiveness, you're agreeing to the movement of the current where forgiveness is the nature of that momentum in God's kingdom. It's just what we do around here when God reigns as king. It's the idea. Next line says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, okay, so this could be translated as lead us not into the, um, the test, the testing, the great test, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. Um, you can cue the debate. Um, either way, this little line of the prayer throws us back once again into our Old Testaments where we, we all remember a story where humanity was given the dignity of choice to choose between life and death blessing and curse, good and evil. The test of the garden was, will you trust God and what he says is good for you? Or will you take matters into your own hands? And of course, there was that voice, that evil one, who presented them with this temptation or this test. Can you really trust God? Did he really say that? 
Now, the test is the great revealer of what's inside of us. And to be sure, it is clear that humanity, like Israel in the pages which follow, they fail the great test of trusting God. That is, until Jesus comes along. In Jesus, seen most poignantly in the Garden of Gethsemane, it would be a garden, of course, that he passes the test on our behalf. Even when faced with the most tantalizing way forward to reject the pain and the suffering known to humanity and the broken world we inhabit, he says no to the voice of the serpent and he trusts his father instead. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation or the test, but deliver us from evil, we're doing several things all at once. This is a little complicated, but I think we can hold it. First, when we pray that, we're praising Jesus for his faithfulness and obedience where we all inevitably, in one way or another, fail. We recognize that he was obedient, even to death on a cross, which flooded the world with forgiveness and then burst forth in the first fruits of new creation in his resurrection. We've been given the gracious gift of his life, the Bible says. This is good news, so we praise him when we pray this little line. But then also, we're praying that God would hold us in the place of his wisdom, the place of his heart, where we hear him and we trust him and we wait for him. We pray that he would remain in us as we remain in him and that he would, we would know his voice and that we would bear good fruit. In light of all the stories which come before Jesus, we pray that we would not fall into a moment where we simply decide our Father in heaven is no longer trustworthy we must, and that we have to take the fruit and judge that for ourselves now. The Lord's Prayer is, it's not a promise that the test will never come or that we won't encounter evil. Rather, it's a prayer of hope that um, the one who, it's a, it's a hope that the one who, when faced the test and stared evil down in the moment of truth and passed it and defeated it, that he would empower us to learn how to do the same by his spirit until one day it's banished forever. So, um, we're at time, um, and frankly, man, frankly for me, there's just like no more teaching on the matter. I have much to learn about the Lord's Prayer, certainly, but at the end of the day, um, the Lord's Prayer ought not be taught. It just needs to be prayed. 